I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Johannesburg studio today is Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Mission in South Africa, Ms. Jessie Le Pen who took up this position in December 2016 after first serving as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Pretoria from July 2016. Prior to this, she was the Chief of Staff to the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy and Human Rights at the Department of State in Washington, D.C. She was also Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Kigali from 2012 to 2014, and some of her overseas tours have included posts in the Middle East from Jeddah to Raida to Baghdad and Jerusalem. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. To begin with, your foreign affairs career started in 1994, coincidentally the same year as South Africa's first democratic elections, and we're now on the eve of our, our sixth democratic elections, and you rose through various domestic assignments and international roles to now serve the United States in South Africa. So to begin with, can you share with us a little bit about some of the roles and responsibilities that come with this position? Sure. Um so first, uh, when you think about sort of what's your, you know, the question is like, what's your job? Exactly. Um, right? It's a hard question in terms of every day is different. I think, first, I love my job. I have a great job. Uh, so I'm lucky in that respect. But if I think about it, it strikes me there's almost two aspects. One is I think probably what people think of when they think of as a diplomat, right? The idea is I represent America here. So what's your job? I'm America in South Africa is literally my job. And I I lead an extraordinary and talented team in explaining to South Africans who we are as Americans, what do we do, what do we care about, what are our values, and how can we find points of intersection between ourselves and our values and South Africans and their values. And in many ways, that's actually a pretty easy job because there's so many points of confluence, of, of shared interests, of common experiences. Um, I also, in the, in the same space, I'm explaining South Africa to Washington. So as Washington uh, works its way through difficult policy questions, I said, well, let me tell you how South Africans look at this issue. Let me tell you how they're likely to react. And so I serve as a bridge, an explanation between the two but with the focus being here, who are we? The interesting thing, though, is that is a big, let's say, two-thirds of my job. But the other probably one-third, which would be less visible, is actually leading a really large organization. So I think because of the way diplomacy works, people see one person and they think that person is doing everything. It's a bit like the iceberg analogy. Completely. Or, you know, it's, it's the duck who's, who with the feet underneath and you can't see. But our, our feet underneath are actually 1,200 people, which I think, not that numbers tell a whole story, but is a really interesting indicator of U.S. literal physical commitment 
to South Africa. So we've got 1,200 people. We are in Durban, in Cape Town, in Johannesburg, and also in Pretoria. Um, those 1,200 people represent a range of sort of bureaucratic interests and skills and competencies, everything from commerce to culture to uh, cooperation on law enforcement issues. So we really run the gamut. Of the 1,200, roughly 400 are Americans who've come here with their families, their kids, their husbands, their boyfriends, their mothers-in-law, whatever. All, they, all of them come and they're really living here and in it. And then we have 800 local staff, South African staff, who are the people who explain year in, year out as we transition, here's what's going on, here's your context. Uh, and so... In addition to being the face of America in South Africa, I also actually am leading what in the corporate world would be a really big business. That's for sure. Well, a yeah. staff of 1,200 and servicing citizens, not just American citizens, but also South Africans and anyone from a, a visa requirement, so mm-hmm. tourists coming into the country. So it is a, a breadth of portfolio. You've mentioned the focus from a South African point of view. Are you also working on other projects in other countries on the continent? Yes. So uh, in many ways, I'm really lucky because the American commitment to diplomacy is, is significant, by which I mean we actually have an embassy in every country in the region. I think that reflects our personnel and financial commitment and also our sense that the, that the context in every country is different. Because I'm sitting in South Africa doesn't mean I know what's what in Iswatini. I've got colleagues who are there, who are day in, day out working on on issues from Iswatini to Egypt. But we also know that there are lots of interests and programs that make sense to structure regionally. So then I work with my counterparts across the region and... um, We've got really interesting projects, actually, that are regional, particularly in terms of youth outreach, right? As we think about demographic change and and the youth population, both as an opportunity and in, you know, there's, there's challenges that face youth, but ultimately for all of us, this is, reflects opportunity and possibility. Um, those are common problems across the region, and so we work together on youth-related programs. And we've got two, if I think about it, that I particularly love and have personally spent a bunch of time in. One is called, we call it, everything has an acronym, it seems, in government, the RLC, which is the Regional Leadership Center. It's based in Pretoria at UNISA, and it brings together young people from across sub-Saharan Africa for leadership programs. And they come either um, from government, from non-government, from business, and they participate in a really extraordinary curriculum. And um, it's one of those programs where I wish I could go visit it more, but actually I can't. And it's somebody else's job to get to be that lucky. Um, But it's amazing, amazing young people. And one of the things that we found from that program is part of what they get is being together, that they're able to engage in projects that have a, a cross-border component. Um, similarly, there's a, a program that's actually certainly in South Africa, but I think elsewhere on the continent, 
quite prominent, and that is it's the the Young African Leadership Initiative, or YALIS. In South Africa, it's the Mandela Washington Fellowship Program. And this is a really competitive program that takes hundreds of young Africans to the States every year. Um, and they participate in a six-week residence program on a U.S. campus. And they're grouped uh, by government, by nonprofit, or by corporate, sort of three different tracks. And... Um, it's no exaggeration, I think, to say that when they come back, they describe a life-changing experience. And I think, I mean, I think what they mean is, when they think the experience of what is life-changing, one, the content, the actual curriculum around leadership in their sector. Two, the connectivity from across the, from across the region. And then three, what is it like to have this experience in America, to, to be in America, not to watch it from afar on TV. Uh, and those, what we call our, our yalis. I have spent a lot, a lot of time with them, uh, both before they go, but then more particularly when they come back to sort of, great, you've had this experience. Now what? Now what are you going to do hmm. with, frankly, with this amazing opportunity and privilege? How are you going to take it and make more of it, whether for yourself, your community, your country? Those are really interesting programs, and it seems as though the emphasis is on leadership, and almost look at leadership as if you're able to direct and inform at the top end that when they come back, hopefully there'll be a ripple effect of what their knowledge gains have been out of the country to then bring back into the market. So it must be fascinating on the program of when they reflect what they're going to do once they're on home turf. I think so. And we try to build it in from the beginning to say, you know, find that mix of going and being present, be where you are, but also be thinking, how are you going to incorporate it? What are you going to do? How is this going to contribute? Um, it's interesting in terms of that, you know, we've done many different exchange programs for, for many years. And I last year was with um, a, a former... Fulbright, so Fulbright, which was one of our oldest and most prestigious of our exchange programs, and I was, we were doing a send-off for the new Fulbright cohort, and um, we asked a former Fulbrighter to speak. He had done a Fulbright in the late 80s, and he had come from Mpumalanga. He had gone to Fort Hare, and in the late 80s, he went to do a master's in mathematics at Berkeley in California. And quickly doing my math, about 35 years later, as he is now one of the most prominent South Africans in the financial sector, he told the story of his journey and of where this Fulbright experience fit in and how it had, without question, changed his life on return and contributed to who he was. And his charge to the to the new cohort was quite extraordinary. It was, take this seriously. This is an opportunity for your country, and you are part of it. And like, make the most of it for yourself, but also make the most of it for South Africa. I mean, I was like literally tearing up because it was so extraordinary. We had done something, but he had made it 
something of value. And, and taking on that responsibility. And I think that that's part of the values within the African context, not so much from an individualistic perspective, but this view as collective and what you do within that collective space and the people that matter, not just on the home front, uh, but broader in those communities. Very much. And look, that's, I would say... Um, if I think about my time here, a piece of it is what do I do, what do I bring, but also what do I get, what do I learn, how do I be here and learn the spirit of Ubuntu and, and open myself up to, to experiences and to knowledge that South Africans have to share. And I, I also have lived in Rwanda, so I similar there, you know, what experiences and knowledge do I do I borrow and take from Rwandans hmm. in exchange for whatever knowledge and experience I bring? You've spoken about being the face of America and also about some of the work that you do, particularly with these, these exchange programs. And also the presence of America across the continent really demonstrates commitment of having a foot in Africa. And when I look at this as part of foreign policy, from a South African point of view, promoting trade investment and also positively contributing to the image of not just South Africa, but Africa to the world is inducted in, these, in, in the policy rhetoric. We're a growing continent. Your focus on youth, we've got what, a population that's going to be about 2.5 by 2050, where most of them are going to be under the age of 30, which means that there's got to be economic investments to sustain people. U.S. foreign policy encompasses, I believe I think it's five sectors of peace, security, countering terrorism, economic growth and development, promoting democracy and governance. I read that last year you made a pledge of 16 billion rand to help control the HIV AIDS epidemic in South Africa. There's AGOA, the Africa Growth Opportunity Act, so could you just expand a bit more for us on some of the U.S. foreign policy and how it applies and benefits the country? Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned the, the HIV commitment. I think, um, I think you know, most of your listeners know, that the U.S. commitment to, to work with African partners to address HIV is now, we just had our 15th anniversary. It's a 15-year program at a an extraordinary, sort of un, truly unprecedented level. Right? Never before in the history of the world has any kind of commitment to a single disease been what we are doing with HIV. The South African story in particular is extraordinary because, because of the, the scale of the population and the scale of the epidemic, um, but also the scale of the science and the research going on here. And so our investment, you can think of in, in many ways. One, it's in terms of research. What we're doing on the research side um, is is extraordinary. It is world class. It is, you know, when you think about partnership, what does that mean? It means you need both sides, and that is the story of the U.S. South African research partnership in in HIV. Um, another piece of it is working with government to get people on treatment. So the the approach now. Um, under under the Global Fund and UNAIDS is that 90% of people know their status. 90% of those people are 
on antiretrovirals and of them 90% are virally suppressed. And so they call it the 90-90-90 goals. And that is what we are addressing here in South Africa, but across the across the region to bring the epidemic under control. Um, one of the challenges that we have is reaching the most vulnerable populations, which in South Africa is really adolescent girls and young women. So it is young women aged 15 to 24. How do we reach them and support them to prevent themselves from getting HIV? And it's really hard because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This happens in a in a complicated social context, context of a family, of an individual, of a community. And so we've gone about it in in a number of ways, ways that have been really successful, but where we still have, with South African partners, a lot of work to do. Um, so we are we are sponsoring a program, not actually just in South Africa, but in in ten countries across the region, called Dreams Determined resilient, empowered, AIDS-free, mentored, and safe. So DREAMS. That's a good acronym. It's a good good one. It's much better than many government acronyms. And um, it's about recognizing the context of of an individual young woman or, or adolescent girl and trying to support her where she is with her peers and to basically support her to do what she needs to do to keep herself safe and strong. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had great success. What's been terrific about this program is we've found wonderful local partners, but we've also found U.S. businesses who are in the health sector who want to come in and partner with us as well. Um, so DREAMS has been a really exciting, it's been a really exciting program. Mm-hmm. And the uh, challenge, I would say, with something like HIV AIDS is that I felt that there was a really strong education movement around it, which was substantiated and kept going. But then it almost lapsed. And the reality is that it's not a once or thing. Education has to be ongoing because each generation, there's a successive generation that comes up and you have to talk to the next generation. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. It's sort of, it's it's not done. And it's interesting um, to think about there was a period of crisis, and that um, created an unbelievable response. And we no longer feel ourselves mm-hmm. to be in crisis, but 1,200 South African girls become HIV positive every week. That that feels like crisis to me. But we're not. you can't operate at crisis levels over 15 years. And so I think there's value not in thinking of crisis, but in thinking of urgency. Right, because what urgency does is it pulls all parties to the table. And I, I do think in addressing HIV AIDS, that's really important to get back to that point where everybody comes to the table all together with focus, with purpose, with intentionality. Okay, university, what do you bring? Okay, business, what do you bring? Government, international partner, all of us at the table because 1,200 girls every week is 1,200 girls too many. And in terms of, of other developments, so besides the, the work that goes into the, the healthcare focus mm. from, uh, from a trade point of view and development space? So from a trade point of view, you mentioned the AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, um, which 
I I know you have listeners across the continent, so I will say that South Africa is the greatest beneficiary of AGOA, which I hope um, women entrepreneurs outside of South Africa will 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 take um, take up the gauntlet because it is it's a trade preference that allows for the export to the United States of certain goods duty free, and we have been thrilled by by the uptake of African entrepreneurs to export to the U.S. Um, we spend, as you mentioned, a lot of time from the embassy focusing on on the trade and investment relationship. So in South Africa, it is, it's largely U.S.-South Africa, but we also recognize that the nature of the, the market is such that both um, African countries and we in the United States benefit from greater regional trade integration. What do I mean by that? Well, we've got a platform which is called the Trade Hub, and we have, at this point, three trade hubs, one in East Africa, one in West Africa, and one in Southern Africa and South Africa. And their focus is is twofold. It is facilitating intra-regional trade and then using that as a platform for trade with the United States. And um, we've seen great... I'm not wearing them today, but often I wear earrings that are imported to the United States from South Africa, uh, and they are under um, the AGOA. And it's it's my sort of small, quick fashion gendered example of you know what does use of AGOA look like? Um, and we've had huge progress, but we know that that we've got to that we've got to keep at it. That the um, the value for for bilateral trade can only grow, and that the development needs are significant. And one of the important ways to address those needs is through increasing trade and commerce. And perhaps it's not the right way of looking at it, but I, I look back to the, the the point that we raised earlier in terms of the the demographic profile and the number of youth that we're going to have looking from a future perspective, that Africa is going to be the continent where we've got a workforce. Because if we look across to the likes of of Europe and other nations, it's an aging population. And thinking about a world becoming more and more globally connected and having these opportunities, whether it's from AGOA or other bilateral commitments, it just it, it shows that we can use Africa perhaps as a as a workforce that could be utilizing their talents to feed into other regions. Very, very much. And I've been been struck, particularly in South Africa, one of the, the challenges where we look to partner with South Africans is around issues related to youth unemployment, um, which is, it's a, it's a significant challenge, um, one that as the nature of work Changes we need to redouble our efforts to address. There's a terrific program in South Africa called Harambe, um, which we've very happily been supporting for the last, I want to say, two years, which is focused on um, on skills development for youth and also connecting non-working youth with with work opportunities. And one of the things I particularly like Harambe is that about Harambe is they're really a learning organization. So these are hard problems. There isn't some easy solution to to the challenge of youth unemployment. And I, I think they're doing an excellent job of learning by doing and then sharing what they're learning. And they've recently, in fact, expanded their program to Rwanda, 
So having worked there previously, I'm thrilled to see that. And I think they'll they'll have a new, as an organization, they'll have a new learning because the South African labor market is different than the Rwandan labor market. Education's different skills, different needs, different. All of it is is different. Um, but there are some some common threads and some common learnings. And they have had terrific success in, in placing hundreds and thousands of, of young people uh, in, into jobs and getting them ready to do those jobs and do them well. And through them, I have met a lot of South African young people who've gone on a journey from not working to, to working and, and thriving. And, um, and they, they always say, not for us without us. And I love that expression. You can't, you can't decide. Policymakers can't sit in their office and say, "Yes, this is what young people need. This is what we'll do for them." Young people have to be part of those conversations, part of those solutions. So, not for us without us. These are really inspiring stories of of programs that work, that you really achieve the outcomes, and it's not someone going off doing a program, coming back, and not not being able to to benefit from it. You've mentioned that you were in Rwanda prior to your post in South Africa. Rwanda, for me, is one of those countries which is, well, I think still today it's got the highest percentage of women in parliament. And I always think that by having a a strong presence within a power um, space of women, that that has ripple effects in terms of the policies, in terms of how it benefits women in the country. So could you just share some of your perspectives of, of being in Rwanda? So I'll say something very interesting on that. I I once was asking a senior government official, um, Rwanda has had a, a very progressive and inclusive policy around LGBTI individuals in addition. And and I was asking what was driving that policy as I was congratulating them on on their inclusive approach and respect for human rights of LGBTI individuals. What drove it? Where was this? How? Explain the origins of the policy. And the answer was, our challenges are too great not to include everyone in the solution. And I, I think there's really something to that broadly, that the, the development and other challenges that the continent is facing, and it's not unique to Africa, but the the continent's development challenges are significant and so without bringing everyone to the table it's not it's not realistic to think we're going to get all the ideas that we need and all of the solutions out there and so um an inclusive approach to problem solving is is crucial um now living in south africa um i i see extraordinary women who are at the top of I mean, if I have the the privilege of working um, across sectors, right? I, as a diplomat, I get to work on a little bit of everything, and I have been privileged to engage with South African women who are running media, running finance, running ministries, all of it. And um, for me, that learning from them as as individuals, as women at the top of their field, doing challenging and meaningful work has been a real privilege for me. If I look at the, the interviews that we've done across the years, that that's for me has been one of the biggest benefits of, of being able to learn from my guests. So thanks for sharing.
Today, we're talking to Ms. Jessie Le Pen, who is Charge d'Affaires at the United States Mission in South Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the conversation, we spoke about Ms. Le Pen's role as representing the, the face of America in South Africa, some of the work that she does, the force of employees that she leads in the country, 1,200 strong across Cape Town, Durban and Pretoria. We spoke about some of the programs that are on offer, particularly the youth outreach programs uh, from Regional Leadership Centre run out of UNISA to the Young... uh, Young African Leadership Leadership Initiative, the YALIs. To the Young African Leadership Initiative, the YALIs, who they're affectionately known as. And importantly, what these leadership programs do for these youth when they come back into their respective markets. We are coming towards the latter part of the show. And one important question for me is that on the 8th of March is International Women's Day where women celebrate the progress that's been achieved. And I wondered, in your opinion, what do you think we need need to build on the most to benefit women in the future? So um, every year on International Women's Day, usually U.S. embassies around the world will do a program to market. And for as long as I've been in a leadership position, the embassy has always had to shift and not celebrate International Women's Day on the day because it's also my son's birthday. And what I find is that when I explain that that's my scheduling challenge for an important work event, everybody immediately nods their head and says, but yes, of course, because you have a lot on your plate. You've got work on your plate and you've got family on your plate and you've got to pull them all together. And maybe in a way that is the answer to your question, right, which is how do we support women to to be all things and to be all that they want to be? And I think there's there's two pieces, right? One is is empowerment and tools and enabling and supporting. And then the other is, of course, bringing men into that equation. Um, right, so that family responsibilities don't belong to women only. They belong equally to men and to women so that men have a chance to love and nurture children and women have all the chances that they need, desire, deserve to um, to love and nurture their professional selves. And so for me, International Women's Day has this really um, interesting character character to it where it is a reminder for me of who I am most fully, both someone who is a diplomat who wants to share U.S. values around the empowerment of women in the course of my work, but also um, wants to be home celebrating with my son his birthday. And that's the multidimensionality, I think, of being a woman. It's not boxing someone into a particular role and saying, right, this is your job description, you are a mom. No, I can be a mother, I can be a working professional, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I've got, I wear all of these hats and I manage them simultaneously. I think one of the biggest messages that I've got out of the conversation with you today has been about inclusivity as well as diversity. And as we're coming towards the end of the show, one of the questions that I'd like to ask is about your personal journey. Mm. Some guests 
who've reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields have, have spoken about factors of success incorporating things like uh, perseverance, hard work. Others have spoken about um, fear of failure, for instance. Could you please share with us what have been some of your key drivers? So I think um, in terms of driver that I think one is around family. So I, I grew up in New York City and still, no matter where I live, where I go, define myself as such. But I think was very lucky to have on the one hand, uh, a mom who was very successful and driven in nonprofit management and city government, and to see that model. And then to have uh, a dad who assumed that I would succeed, never questioning it. And I think the truth is it's a lot easier to succeed if people expect you to and if you have models of what success looks like. We know from, we talked earlier about dreams under the PEPFAR program, about youth engagement and support. And I think those lessons actually connect really well with those programs because, again, if you've got models and mentors and high expectations, you're a lot more likely to succeed. So I think I was really privileged in that and have, I think, from that base develop then, you know, as one does in my own way with my own theories. And for me, I have found sometimes um, people ask the question of leaders, but is it lonely? And I always think, well, what are you talking about? I never make a decision by myself. Um, that I always bring in senior staff to uh, advise or challenge or engage. And so for me, a lot of successes then come from thinking of myself as part of a larger team. So it gets at, at the value of inclusivity you were referencing. I think it's unrealistic of one, to think of oneself, yes, I'm going to do it all on my own. It's not. It's, a, it's an impossible challenge then one has set. Um, even if you're, if you're summiting Everest, you're, you're not doing it alone. There's still a team that is summoning with you and supporting you. And so my then theory of, of, of leadership is very much about, so who's on my team, who has skills that I don't have, who knows things that I don't know, who's better at me at something or other, and how do I pull those together to enable us to succeed, which in this case, right, if I say, what does success look like? Um, it looks like supporting the relationship between the U.S. and South Africa. So finding um, common goals, finding common values, uh, ways of working together, and pulling the people and the countries that much closer together. That, for me, is, is one of the most important aspects on applying a team ethos, that when you're working with people, that if you aren't using people's skills, then they feel invalidated. And it isn't a case of having a one-person show. Absolutely. Now, as we close out the conversation, could you please share a, a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young ladies that are, are listening to us on the continent? So... Um we talked a lot about about HIV, so I wouldn't want 
to miss out on the opportunity to underscore that for young women, which is to be aware of risk and to um, to keep themselves safe and to know their status and if they're HIV positive, to stay on their meds. Um, because we talked about HIV so much, I, I wouldn't want to not leave that message. But uh, another broader message I would say is I think all of us um, seek inspiration. All of us are looking to be inspired. And it seems to me that's a pretty great journey to be on. But while one is thinking about um, being inspired, one shouldn't forget that one is also inspiring. And I find this in my engagement with, for example, the the dreams ambassadors of PEPFAR, these young women who I think when we set up programs and visits where I go meet with them, maybe the team thinks I'm going to somehow inspire them because I've got a title in front of my name and um, and a job I've worked hard to get. But that inspiration, in my experience, goes two ways, that I uh, leave as inspired by them as hopefully they are by me. And I, I say that because I see them working hard to be their full selves, to overcome challenging circumstances, and to do better than those before them or to do better for their community. And so for me, that's inspiring. And so I I think that would be the message, which is um, remember that you inspire someone while you are also seeking to be inspired. What a great message. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on our show today. And we wish you every success as you continue with the hard work that you're doing and the meaningful contributions that you're making across the continent. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure being with you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Ms. Jessie Le Pen, who is the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Mission in South Africa.